0: A Discourse of the Removal of the Gospel by Stephen Charnock God has no other intention in the removing of the gospel and unchurching a nation but the utter ruin and destruction of that nation. Other judgments may be medicinal. This is killing. Other judgments may lance and let out the corrupt matter. This opens a passage for life, soul, and happiness. Other judgments are but scourges. This is a deadly wound. In other judgments, God may continue a father. In this, he is no other than an enemy and a destroyer. Other judgments are upon our backs, but this is in our bowels. Welcome to this week's Bud Zone Podcast. What you just heard was Tom Sullivan, the narrated Puritan who can be found on sermon audio under that name, narrate. An excerpt from Stephen Charnock on judgment. From time to time, Tom is going to be providing me with Puritan paragraphs, which I am excited to be sharing with you. So I hope that you enjoy those. And I thank Tom for this first Puritan paragraph on the Bud Zone. Now we'll continue with this week's episode. Welcome to the Bud Zone Podcast. I'm Bud, your host. The Bud Zone Podcast is for, from, and by saints, our buds in the faith, to edify one another in the faith and to encourage one another to love and good works. We discuss the world, we discuss the church, we discuss the faith, we discuss truth, and we do it with the mind of Christ. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this episode of the Bud Zone podcast. I appreciate you joining me. I am especially blessed today. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, I am joined again by Rashad Hendricks. Rashad, you may know, is the producer, the purveyor, the uh, manufacturer of the globally known The Government Is Not God t-shirt. I think it's been on every continent. Is that right, Rashad?
1: I, I, you know, if if it is, please send me pictures. I would love to keep them in my little picture deck that I have. I know they're in Canada. I saw them at the the trucker with the truckers up there in Canada. Uh, so that that was a big blessing. Um, uh, it may be somewhere out. there. I, I thought know, I but.
0: saw pictures of somebody with penguins in the background wearing it. So I I was oh, thinking okay. it's hit every continent. So
1: yeah,
0: but you're known. You've been on here before. We've talked about. The times that we're living in, the, the church's response to the COVID crisis, the Caesar, we've discussed a whole number of issues, so I'm glad that you came back, and I am particularly glad that you came back because you brought another guest along, and I want to have you introduce him for us.
1: Yeah, yeah, I got I got my buddy here, uh, Dr. Peter Sammons. Uh, who is a professor of theology, associate pres- professor of theology at the Master Seminary, uh, recently uh, promoted to that position. Peter, Dr. Peter, welcome
2: to the Buzz Zone. How are you, hey. my
1: friend?
2: Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me. i uh, been really excited to chat with you guys.
0: We're going to call it the Rashad Zone today because he's going to kind of head it up. But I'm honored that you joined us, brother. It's, it's a blessing.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, man. And uh, so you were recently uh, promoted to uh, Associate Professor of Theology over there in uh, Los Angeles, California, at the Master Seminary. That is a big blessing, I can imagine. Peter is a native of Missouri also. Uh, so he's a Midwestern boy. So for our Midwestern listeners, uh, we got one of your native sons right here uh, on the buzz on today. Uh, so, Peter, uh, from the Midwest, made your way out west to the Master Seminary where you're now the associate professor of theology. Uh, so tell us just a little bit about yourself. You don't have to dig down into the nuts and bolts of it. You know, uh, you can just share what you would like to share as far as your testimony or coming to Christ um, and how you made your way out with
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll give you the, the quick highlights. I um, am just continually thankful when I'm asked to even re- you know, remember back to the Lord's work in my life when I was younger um yeah i grew up in a uh you know broken home didn't grow up with a you know great influences i guess i uh spent some time living wherever i could find a place to live i ended up moving in with a witch at one point um and you know got saved through hearing the gospel preached and realizing you know i was no better than all the the other people i thought i was better than and i quickly found that i was out of my depth uh in regard to what i knew about the bible and so i started seeking out you know how to learn more about the Bible. And so through that process, I, I grew tremendously. I was in high school. And so I was just devouring rich theology books. And, and I just felt the call to, to pastoral ministry and it was confirmed by, uh, the church I was at there. And so I went off to college thinking, you know, I'll get some training. Cause I thought it was really serious that I, you know, get some training. I knew I was way out of my depth. And when I got to college, I had a scholarship and I went to a school in Chicago and, um, and started to realize what was passing for Christian education was nothing more than, you know, regurgitated liberalism on steroids and, uh, you know, denying uh, inspiration, uh, denying six day creation, strong, 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 you know, it was a Western Armenian school. Um, so just all the things that I, I wasn't doctrinally, but the things that I saw being taught in the classroom, really the J E P D theory of the old Testament the Q document of the new Testament. And it was just this constant undermining of the inherency and authority of God's word. And it was played out in the lives of all of the students who are also religion majors. You know, it was no uncommon thing for a guy and a girl to be shacking up together that were claiming to be religion majors and like the youth ministry department or whatever. And so at that point I felt more and more called towards training pastors Um, because when I saw this, I was like, this is the next generation of church leaders, and I was like, we have to have better training than that, and so that's really what brought me out to Master Seminary uh, for my training. I knew I wanted to go to a school where my doctrinal convictions were aligned, because I didn't have that in my undergrad, and so it's something that I cherished. I wanted to have unity um, in my uh, school that I was at, where I didn't have to fight over every doctrinal issue. I wouldn't have to fight over evolution or whether or not women should be preachers or charismaticism. And, and I found a home doctrinally in, you know, the master seminary. Uh, again, when I was looking, I was looking broad, you know, I looked at, uh, I was like, well, where's R.C. Sproul at? Cause he was one of my greatest influences and, and he wasn't teaching anymore. And, you know, his church wasn't close really to a school that I could be involved in both. And that was really important for me was having a, uh, a church at where I was going to school or close by that could be involved in the church because I feel like a lot of guys go into academics and they get outside of the church they're not serving in the church and so I wanted that connection and the school that was best for me was master's and so I came out here so that's what brought me to California and uh been out here ever since so got married along the way you know have two kids so it's been great Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. You know, I I like
1: how you kind of threw in, oh, and by the way, I got married, you know, (laughs) I got married too, you know, but the best will save for last. Right. So that's right. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. That's, that's so, so, so indicative of God's grace in your life. You know, um, you hear these different testimonies of how God, you know, regenerated people and brought them, uh, uh, drew them to through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know how you see these clear indications that their life has been changed. Uh, and I think that's the example that you just painted for us. So any anytime I know myself and I and I know I can speak for Bud on this on this note, whenever we hear those those testimonies of people, it's not so much that it's the, the testimony that's amazing. It's that God has drawn someone to his son.
0: Amazing and
1: caused them to see the glories of Jesus Christ
0: absolutely that's one of the things that i um i I do tend to ask folks when they come on here because peter most of the time what i'm doing is having guests on from just different areas of the church to show that even in the midst of the times that we're living in the lord is still at work he's still building his church he's still edifying saints so one of the things i usually ask and and Rashad knows is that uh, I'll ask the question. So why are you a Christian? And it's amazing because you get all of these different kinds of stories, um, kind of testimony, kind of like you would get when you guys do baptism. You know, you, you, yeah. the the person shares. Wow, it's all a it's all a exaltation of Christ. It's it's just so yeah. rewarding. And so we're
2: all you know we're all trophies of divine grace, right? You yeah. Know? In uh, different ways, unique in their own respect, but we all still belong to the same king, and, and he brings us in different ways, you know, to himself. So, yeah, it's, I love that about, even in our church, we do the testimonies before baptism, mm-hmm. and and I think to an unbeliever, they wouldn't see the nuance of it. You know, they would just say, oh, I hear a lot of the same things. Like, I recognize my sin. I was saved by a great Savior. They might hear some things like that, but, you know, all of us are are recognizing that because it did we didn't do it. Yeah. It's God that worked in us. Um, even more so it's unique uh, in that respect because it doesn't happen to everybody. It's not just something I chose to do or that we chose to do, you know, so.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, he actually makes dead people alive.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, and, and a lot of times we, we, I don't think we can fully grasp that. And I know we can't fully grasp that actually, you know, the fact of how the scriptures talks about in Ephesians, how man is actually dead in sin. They're dead. So we can liken that to physical death. Uh, Somebody who's physically dead cannot respond to any outside stimuli. You know, know. um, it's just amazing how God does his work in people's lives.
2: Yeah, it never ceases to be amazing. I know that, like, when you've been in the church for what, 20 years, some of us more than that, you know, people start to stop, they take it for granted that God is regenerating a soul. You know, who stops being amazed by that miracle? I don't know. You know, know, they want to become. To the point where it's just a callous kind of you gloss over it, new names added to the um, to the Rogers register in your church, you know, it's like, no, no, no. The Lord has done some mighty work among us and it's it's encouraging.
0: It's Spurgeon, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Uh Amen. Don't lose the yeah, glory man. of that. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I pray that it does not become common to us. Yeah. Um, so, brother, thank you for, you know, just sharing a little bit about your background uh, out there in the Midwest, you know, some of the things that um, you went through in your pre-Christ uh, life. Uh, just once again, just so amazing how God you know, chooses to save individuals. And in a way that kind of segues a little bit um, into what I want to bring up next. Um, you, you, my friend, are an author. You just uh, released your book. Uh, that i have right here that i have not finished reading yet that i plan to finish reading very soon reprobation and god's sovereignty or recovering the biblical doctrine um, and i believe that this is actually your uh your dissertation that you put in book form is that correct
2: yeah it was kind of a long process to get it to where it's at there uh, my dissertation was originally like in the 500 page range and um, i had one publisher um man and rubric it's like a a refer it's a reformed historical theology series it's basically made for libraries it's not made for the average person because they're so overpriced um but they're doing great work i mean there's a lot of unique contributions there by mark jones and jv fesco and uh joel beakey and, and guys like that that do very specific research so it's a short book it's like a survey a summary survey basically of of historical teaching regarding reprobation. So that was an appendix that I had that they wanted. And then I basically had to edit and rewrite my dissertation into a more uh, approachable form, you know, because the way you write a dissertation is you set forth your thesis. It's very kind of mechanical. And, you know, even in in that book there, I mean, it it still has that academic uh, prose to it. It's not, you know, a very varied, um, stylistic book it's not like a, a lay book and that's stylistic it's but I try to make it as lay accessible as possible and which it really is it, it's short chapters hopefully easy to read I guess you guys can tell me but yeah it is a it is a deep topic it is from my doctoral dissertation but as I was talking with the publisher when I first was pitching it through my agent I said it's laymanized lamanized yeah, so yeah i don't know i coined that, you thank, to you you that you peter, words, thank you for that peter thank you i just make up words yeah, yeah 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 you, you got
1: a little bit of weight behind your name now to, hey this is lamanized. Yeah. yes yeah, make up a word that's
2: it right I mean. right yeah
1: so that this this is is to your point is it's balance you know you see all of the the references in it um the quotes uh the sub the the subject matter itself, uh, of course, is uh, we're talking about God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. That's been debated for centuries upon centuries, but uh, it is a, a readable book. But it also should be able to hold uh, the, the attention, if you will, of somebody who may be uh, someone who uh, a doctor or, or um, a theology degree or something. Uh, so it is balanced in that respect um, from what I've seen in here. And I did want to whet the appetite a uh, little of our listeners, uh, which, by the way, you can purchase this book on Amazon and other um, um, websites and sell books. It's made by Kregel or produced by Craigle Acad- Academic. Um, here's a little quote in here that I wanted to, to, to share with uh, the listeners. The intention of this book is to help faithful Christians understand reprobation Properly and to help them recognize and establish the role of secondary causes. This process helps clarify a vast number of scripture passages that are often neglected, avoided, or distorted by many in the church. A clear understanding of secondary causes preserves God's holy sovereignty and man's accountability with respect to reprobation. You know, so nothing that has been controversial historically. Just, you know, we're talking about... (laughs) You know God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So, um, very, very uh, happy for you, brother, to be able to put that in a published format and, and send out, and it, it should be a very um, a solid contribution to this this long-standing debate about God's sovereignty and and what role man's responsibility plays uh, in everything. So, but um, this is very happy this- that you put that out.
0: I was going to say, Rashad, to tag onto what you've said, I, I you know, I have, I've got the copy of the book too, and uh, I have not, I have not read it yet. It's kind of scary, but what? I, <laughs>
2: yeah, it is a scary topic. Yeah, no sure.
0: kidding. I mean, legitimately scary, doctrinally yeah. scary, um, which emphasizes the grace that we talked about earlier. Um, and I, when I got it, I'm like, okay, well, I guess he's probably talking about Romans nine. And I see on the back cover, uh, with Romans nine as a guiding text, Salmon presents a thoroughly researched defense of reprobation as an essential part in a reformed theology that magnifies God and encourages believers to trust in him. Um, but then you've got these other things down here. God's justice, election, compatibilism, secondary causality, preterition, pre-damnation, um, You think these things are accessible to the pew, brother?
2: Some heavy lifting. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things when I first became a Christian, and again, I I don't have this, you know, pedigree of, you know, family training, you know, that goes back or nothing like that. I mean, I just, I remember when I got saved and I first came to the doctrines of grace, I knew something miraculous had happened in my soul that I, I loved things differently than what I loved before I was a Christian. You know, my life changed dramatically. I remember when I first was introduced to the doctrines of grace um, and read Romans 9 for myself, I could not answer that. I had no clue. I remember going to my, my friends at school, who is also a Christian, you know, good friend of mine. He's uh, best man at my wedding. You know, we're still good friends. He went to Westminster um, later on in his life. But I remember going up to him. I first got introduced to this stuff, and I said, what if jesus didn't die for everyone i mean i immediately made this connection between predestination and limited atonement in my mind because that would have been the most scandalous thing my mind would have thought of because i'd never ever considered anything outside of the kind of bible belt jesus died for everybody pray this prayer come up you know down the altar or you know four or five times in your youth and get saved every couple weeks and I remember thinking that it was just this stigma of, oh, my, you know, what has happened? And my friend was really upset with me at first because he was like, and I said, you got to read Romans 9. It changed everything <laughs> I've ever thought. And um,
0: it's so in I there. Check really it out. The question yep.
2: diving into that stuff, reading books about it was, well, what about the non-elect? You know, I'm reading books about election, five points, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible just grace. I'm getting a predestination and election. And I'm like, but what about the non-elect? And I started to notice there wasn't a lot of material out there, you know, I mean, there's some stuff, older stuff that's out there, or it might be a paragraph and a systematic here or there, but as an extensive work, there wasn't a lot. I think the best thing at the time before my book came out was what introduced me to it was R.C. Sproul's chosen by God. Mm -hmm. I think it was chapter six or chapter seven, double, double toil and trouble is predestination." double that chapter, which I, you know, I cite in the book and everything. It was just one chapter in there that dealt with it. And so the goal for this book was to be basically a companion to that entire, to that chapter, expanding that whole chapter. was what I wanted to do with my dissertation. Um, originally I was doing a dissertation on limited atonement at a different school at the Free University of Amsterdam. And so I was working on this and I couldn't have them overlap too much. So I don't know. It was one of those things that was just miraculously is the more I study it, the more I was just uh, amazed at what I found doctrinally, the harmony of scripture that made sense as I'm reading and again, coming across those tough texts where it says God sent a spirit of stupor, mm-hmm. you know, to this doom they were appointed. You know, you look at Peter and Jude and some of these really difficult texts, Romans 9 is the big one because the whole chapter. Um, but a lot of other texts that you see God being, you know, attributed with some things that were like, well, wait a minute, this seems bad, you know. But then without an understanding of levels of, causality or levels of chargeability like ultimate proximate or efficient cause. If you can't differentiate those, then you can't read acts two or acts four and distinguish the differences between Jesus or God's responsibility, a father's responsibility of preordaining the death of the son and the responsibility of the Jews and Gentiles Mm -hmm. who had an evil intention, who had evil motives. And yet his motive is the most holy, And loving thing, uh, motive of all time was to save sinners, you know, for which Christ came to do, you know. So, you know, looking at that, I think this book gives at least some guidance towards harmonizing these texts that otherwise out of context seems scary or don't make sense or can be misused by people. Um, So that's kind of the goal. But yeah, historically, there hasn't been a lot written on it. Um, So that's why I thought, you know, the church needs this, you know. Well, you,
0: you got a, uh, I mean, this is probably a helpful endorsement. Uh, I think most folks would know him, but uh, he says Peter Sammons has provided for us what is undoubtedly the most thorough explanation and defense of the doctrine of predestination and reprobation. And I strongly commend it to you. That's the guy, John MacArthur. So <laughs>
1: I think I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've that, heard that
0: name before. That's uh, that's yeah. that's a wonderful Accolade, uh, certainly.
2: Yeah, he's but, uh, extremely generous. And yeah, same with the rest of those endorsers. They're all great guys. So. It's, um, you know, you kind of, you have
1: a wide gamut of quotes and, and references in here, which kind of speaks to, you know, um, the reform consensus, you know, on, on the topic. Uh, I mean, we've got everything from Anglican to Reformed Baptist, Presbyterian, and we've got Aristotle. You know, we got Aquinas in here. We got Scholastics in here. So, um I think this this book is um, this is going to be be something that is very, very, very helpful for a lot of people um, who, like you said, may have been just pondering it, and perhaps they can't find you know what they want to find on it, or or, or learn what they want to learn on it. So, yeah, um, I mean,
2: it's one of those things too. There's like two parts to that that I always think are important is that. Um, You know, think about how people, I think the reason why people get upset with Calvinism and the doctrines of grace is because when election, which results in a good thing, the salvation of a soul, people get upset about that. Imagine how much more so they're going to get upset whenever they hear about the non-elect, you know, so that's one thing. The other thing is, like, I talk to students about all the time in my class I'll ask them if I want to know where someone's at doctrinally. Like, if I only had known you guys for a real short amount of time and I was wanting to gauge where you're at or... Uh, As Bud was telling me, you know, kind of before the show, how he came to his new church, he had a lot of questions for the pastor, which I recommend every congregant to do when you're finding a new church, uh, interview your pastor uh, before you go there. But the thing I ask students, I'll ask them one or two questions, either tell me what they believe about the doctrine of the atonement, or tell me what they believe about the doctrine of predestination. I think either one of those questions get you there. But in order to, I can tell based on their conclusion all of the other doctrines that they presuppose. I can tell if they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I can tell, or how seriously they take Scripture to inform their doctrinal conclusions. I can tell, you know, what they believe about the doctrine of man, you know, I can tell what they believe about the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ's work, um, and God's sovereignty with either of those questions, because they're kind of capstone doctrines. You don't formulate an opinion of those without having a bunch of presupposed doctrine under your belt and so those two kind of tell me where you're at in a glimpse doctrinally um very quickly you know based on what people say so i don't know just throwing it out there something that's why i feel like it's one of those doctrines that's very important people have a lot of strong opinions about it
0: well that is profound and that's exciting to hear let me ask just kind of a dumb question maybe and since this is pre-recorded i can edit my own dumb questions out so (laughs) so you know (laughs) when you do that with new students that are coming in do you find that most of them have a reasonably Orthodox grasp of that or are most of them coming from churches where they're they're really doctrinally deficient
2: well it depends I mean with they're coming to masters um, that I found that they are already pretty educated doctrinally before they get here okay uh, when I've taught at other schools um, you know, or I've been a visiting guy at a different church or a school or something like that. I found that that's where I, it's a lot more wild card, you know, yeah. sometimes I'll go to a church and I won't have high expectations of, you know, where everyone's at doctrinally. Cause I don't know much about them. They're not confessional. They're not, I, I don't know much about them. I'm just invited to preach or something. And I start to talk to their pastors or some of their staff and, and just laymen. And sometimes I'm blown away by how doctrinally educated they are and how committed they are and sometimes i'm kind of like oh, i kind of expect a little more you know um so when i'm outside of these circles you know that i'm in right now the kind of bubble here at grace church um you know that's what i find But when i'm here i mean i realize people are moving across the world in many cases from egypt from all you know many continents to relocate all across america to come to the master's seminary which is in la probably the worst place to live economically uh, and definitely politically. So, you know, they are sacrificing extraordinary amounts, relocating their families, giving up whatever profession they had before where you could go to another school and sacrifice a whole lot less. Mm -hmm. So, you have to really be committed to the doctrine and to the approach of what we do, which is training pastors. Mm -hmm. And so, in the verse by verse exposition. You have to be really committed to that. So I find these guys are already really educated doctrinally in terms of, at least in a bird's eye view, they're, they're Calvinists, they're cessationists, they're premillennial um, lordship guys. Um, they're not woke, you know, that kind of stuff that, that generally would summarize the students I've seen over the last five years. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That That is, um, Definitely, uh, something, something that is very wor- worthy, um, oh, to really? do, you know, to pick up your family and move yeah, clear across the country from other well, parts there. of the world.
2: One thing I want to throw back in real quick, just back to Bud's question. So, but I did, whenever I was a student in my university, me and my friend, uh, who was another, one of the guys my wedding, one of my best men, I had two best men, by the way, couldn't <laughs> <Goodness> decide. <laughs> so, uh. Anyway, I figured they could wrestle it out. Peter right? Danger um,
0: Salmons. That's probably yeah, why. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: So, me and my friend Matt at the time, we were at this, you know, again, Wesleyan Armenian school, and we knew we needed to find a church. He was new to the doctrines of grace. And so we're like, you know, we need to find a good church. So, we went and interviewed all the pastors in the area. I think we went to something like 20 something churches. And we asked them two questions. We asked them one, um, what is the mission of your church? Like, why is your, what do you see as the main, role of the church that you have. And then and that got all sorts of questions or all sorts of responses. But then the other question was to ask for the gospel. What is the gospel? Yeah. And you would be, you maybe wouldn't be, but you would be shocked. I have 23 or 24 churches that we went to in that area, suburb of Chicago. I think two churches, if I remember correctly, only two could give you a saving gospel message. Mm-hmm. Most of them didn't mention sin. In fact, one guy, and we follow-up questions, you know, one guy didn't mention sin at all. And we said, sir, you don't even have sin in your gospel presentation. What good news is the good news if no one's a sinner, you know? Right. And he just said, well, I don't want to, you know, preach negative stuff. I just preach love. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about the bad things like sin. And it was just very clear, like, you know what, sir, I can tell you this. The Holy spirit does not work in your church.
0: Mm-hmm. The Holy spirit is not
2: active in your church because the Holy spirit brings conviction of sin. And if yeah. you don't tell anyone about sin in your church, the Holy Spirit is not working in your church. And we had a lot of crazy answers though, you know, uh, in that area, but it was, it was shameful. We had to drive 45 minutes away um, to Lansing. I think it was our new Linux, you know, it was 45 minutes away to uh, um, a church pastored by Uh, This guy, Arvid Svensson, you know, faithful verse-by-verse exposure. We had to go 45 minutes to find that church, you know, past all these other ones. So, yeah, just to kind of go back, I don't know if that's even related, but I just remember, you you know, you want to make sure that you're doctrinally aligned. You know, it's like a marriage, you know, when you're getting involved in a church. Yeah,
0: and, and Rashad will echo this. I mean, he'll say amen to this. He and I live, you know, Jacksonville, Florida area, so we are kind of in the Bible belt. So if you encounter somebody as a Christian, you're going to evangelize or you're going to share the gospel with somebody. Almost everybody is already born again. You know, everybody's a Christian. So that that very thing that you said you'd use to interview the pastors is what I'll use when I run across somebody who says I'm a Christian. It's like, oh, great. That's wonderful. Listen, do me a favor. Share the gospel with me because I love to hear it. And you can really quickly tell, oh, they don't get it. It, yeah. They've got cultural Although, Christianity.
2: It's even just as scandalous of a question, which probably takes less time that you can find out they're not a Christian really easy. It's just say, oh, where do you go to church?
0: Oh, well, true.
2: <laughs> because back where I grew up, you know, in Missouri, uh, you know, well, I mean, there was more churches than bars at one point. I don't know about it anymore. It's been twenty years, but um, which praise the Lord, at least for that, you know, some kind of a sanctifying influence, even if it's only superficial. But nevertheless. Uh, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people didn't go to church or they would go to a church that you know isn't a Christian church. Yeah. You're like, oh, come on, Church of Christ, you know, or you know what I mean, or you're going to the Assembly of God church. I know what they teach there. Especially when they're local, you can get an assessment of what those pastors and churches teach Yeah, so you at least know where they're at, you know, how hard to yeah. press. It's like, oh, man, you're a dangerous church. You need to get out of there, you know.
0: But if you would tell uh, a person who is a faithful believer, regenerate, And they're in a circumstance where they don't have a sound local church. You had to drive 45 minutes. You tell them you drive to the closest one you can get to.
2: So I got married 2007. So again, another testimony to my wife wasn't just that she married me, but that was a big one, probably the biggest one, but also (laughs) that she followed me to come all the way out here (laughs) to California. It's one thing to say, marry me. It's another thing to say, come with me to California, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew even before then I was teaching Bible studies there on campus and I had a lot of new guys coming to the doctrines of grace, many people to saving faith just through the Bible studies. And yet, this was supposed to be a Christian school. Uh, you'd wow. be surprised at how many people get actually saved at a Christian school. But um, I knew that what we were getting in the chapel time, and I can tell you some really, I mean, bizarre stories about what passed for chapel there. Um, you know, people speaking in the name of the Lord, you know, pretending to be Christians and telling jokes and all sorts of nonsense that was passing. And I was like, we need to go to a church. I can't tell these guys verse by verse exposition being in God's word is the supreme authority for guiding your life and your doctrine. Everything you believe has to be shaped by that. Right. Uh, Unwaveringly, no matter how hard it is of a pill to swallow. And um, anyways, and then go just settle for some average church where, you know, they mean well, but they get up there and say something like, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Hopefully you'll help them out, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I would say as much as people are, I mean, you need to be in a local church. So back, back to that question. Um, I, I don't know any Christian, an actual Christian who forsakes the assembly of the local church. Right. It tells mm-hmm. us that it says, do mm-hmm. not forsake the gathering together as some do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Christ made a body, which is many members, to sanctify and edify one another. You can't be apart from Christ's body if you love Christ, right? So you have to be a part of a local church, but you have to be part of a real church. And a real church is, is formed by right teaching of the Word of God, right? Uh, where the ordinances are properly administered and where church discipline is performed. I put those three at the top. There's many marks. You could go through the nine marks, I guess, but nevertheless, like if you don't have the gospel properly taught, you do not have a church, right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, as people are looking for churches that are like-minded, they're doctrinally sound. Um, sometimes you have to travel to go to find that. You now, for me, I've I've told people, look, if I was in the middle of Florida, here, you know, I don't know. And the closest church to me, let's say, like the one that's 10 minutes away, was R.C. Sproul's church, even though I'm a Baptist. If they would have me, I would happily go. And they would understand I'm a Baptist, and that's weird to them. But if they would have me, I would lovingly be there and submit to their elders and, and everything, right? Amen. But if next door was John MacArthur's church, Well, I would go with the one I'm more doctrinally like-minded with, which would be John MacArthur's church, where I go now. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily leave um, a Bible-preaching church um, only because there's a small doctrinal difference. You know, even if it's something like, you know, the timing of the rapture or something like that, I wouldn't leave a church over something like that. Um, But again, as long as the Verse by verse exposition is there, Um, but I do think it is worth. Sometimes you have to travel. Sometimes you have to drive thirty minutes, and is that a huge? You know, sometimes you have to sacrifice a little bit. You know, like it's not a big. It's not like back before there were cars and everyone had one. You know, where you had to travel a week to go thirty miles. You know. Yeah,
0: but if you had Stephen Furtick's church ten minutes away, or a sound expositor an hour away.
2: Yeah, yeah, driving you're driving an hour. An hour. You're driving, yeah. 100%. No I mean, as a stewardship of your, if you're a man, as a stewardship of the responsibility God has given you as a spiritual head of your house, I think you're obligated to make that sacrifice, whatever it might be, to get your church, get your family in a sound church. And sometimes that means moving. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. that means, you know, and, and maybe that's what you do is you drive an hour, you start to realize, I'm too far from my church. Maybe I'll move 30 minutes closer and drive 30 minutes to work every day. Yeah. and then you know you're close I mean you have to figure that out for yourself on a personal level but yeah 100 percent I wouldn't even call for it a church' or church but, <laughs> exactly. they, but yeah totally yeah you want to go to some superficial place where they're just feeding you cotton candy every day because it's entertaining you know there's no spiritual nourishment there it's not really even a true church so yeah, uh, yeah I think it's worth the sacrifice.
0: Yeah, if they don't That's say true. reprobation at any point in their doctrinal teaching, anywhere from the pulpit or in their Sunday school, if the word rep- reprobation is never used, you probably need to find some other. <laughs>
1: <thing>. Keep <laughs> driving. Go ahead, Rashad. <laughs> he, he, I didn't he, mean he, you to interrupt yeah. you. Know, so. <laughs> so, 20 nearly or 20 plus interviews, and maybe two of the churches really understood the biblical gospel. Yeah. Or presented yeah. the biblical gospel, but mm-hmm. I think that's another indictment. Um, on what passes for Christianity, yeah, yeah, and
2: that you know was man. 2006, I think 2005, mm-hmm. 2006. So, think about how much worse things are now,
1: yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. one out of 20 now, yeah. That, that's uh, that's a poor batting average, yeah, yeah, that is um, that is crazy. So um, I forgot where we le- where we started.
0: <laughs> I know. Um, I interrupted well, I you. I apologize. The
1: book, the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, the book. So I'm putting the plug out there for everybody who listens. Go purchase his book. Amazon, wherever you can purchase books from. Go to the Craigle Academic website. If you don't want to use Amazon. I know how some people are about Amazon. So go to Google it.
2: Yeah, you know, someone told me it was being sold online at Target and Walmart of all places. Really? Well, hey. Yeah, uh, someone sent me a screenshot of Target.com. And I was like, because I think they buy things from Amazon and store yeah. it in their own. You know, they sell it on their website, but have it maybe shipped. I'm not sure that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, someone sent me that. and I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah,
1: and it may be a little cheaper, too. They're trying to yeah. make a, know, $20 some $20. type of a profit off
0: of Well, I'll put a link in the show notes for wherever you want me to i mean normally i do it to amazon i know i know yeah, people have issues i know
2: but... yeah i don't know i really appreciate it it's really generous i don't yeah you know i uh i just hope people enjoy it and benefit and grow yeah. you know you mean yeah
1: we need good sound theology we need good historical uh theology that's come down through the ages um
2: yeah you wouldn't <laughs> be surprised at the kind of stuff i had to go through to get that thing um you know Kriegel was the only well, not the not the only. They were this of, of the two that I had at the end, publishers wise. They were one of the only two that was willing to even put reprobation in the title. Mm-hmm. The other ones were too scared of even having it in the title. I don't know if they thought mm-hmm. it was too nebulous of a thing, um, or they thought it would just you know hamper sales. But um, it was one of those things where, and you'd be surprised too, how many Christian uh, book companies want these hundred page kind of devotionals. And that's what they're mostly going to now are these kind of like practical-esque type books without any like really deep theology. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I think we have this issue in the church now where we're surprised why people in the pew can't sit through for an hour of verse-by-verse exposition is because they're not being trained to by their pastors for one. And their pastors aren't being trained in deep theology. They're just reading pop-level theology at best. Maybe they're reading good blogs, but they're not reading like tomes like we used mm-hmm. to have like you think about you know when owen wrote uh, display of armenianism he yeah, was 100 pages so not as long it, you know it's about the length that you would want today um but that was that was popular level theology back then yeah. you know and it's awesome
0: <laughs> you you actually
2: and
1: owen's owen's hundred pages the uh, the hundred pages was probably just a
0: subtitle, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I had a guy on uh, the podcast last week, and he does uh, it's Tom Sullivan. He does the narrated Puritan, so he reads all these Puritan works, Puritan sermons, whatever. and we were talking about John Owen, and uh, he's like, yeah, you know the the um commentary he wrote on Hebrews, the first one thousand pages is the introduction, and I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. You know.
0: Because there's so that's much depth. It, yeah. You point to that and, and I I don't I'm interrupting Rashad again, brother. I'm sorry about that, but you No, 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 you, no, 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 that's good. You point that is, that at this good. out when we get to the TMS journal, you, you make a comment that, well, we're trying to make it easy for the for the layman. Well, those things were written for the layman. You know, yeah. this adva- I mean, right. Owen's teaching sixteen year olds at, at Oxford, uh, this deep <laughs> yeah. theology. And now, you know <laughs> We're yeah, uh, yeah, we're destitute. You, hit,
1: you really hit on something And a really good book. Um, I don't know if you guys have read this, is called The Pastor Theologian, uh by High and Wilson. Uh there's somewhere up in Chicago I wanna say, and uh they kinda hit on that about how it's really being lost uh as time has progressed, the idea of a pastor being an actual theologian.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, um he said that that people um over the last course of however many years have just kind of gravitated more to what you said, Peter, you know, the pop, the pop theology, Um, you know, just popular level guys and just popular, you know, little quips and blurbs and, you know, feel good things and nothing really, uh, you know, nothing like the tomes that you mentioned. Um, You know, it's almost like it's an aversion to those things or an attitude of, you know, well, well, you know, we don't have to really do all of that. We'll leave all of the theology and everything for the guys in the academy and for the, the, yeah. the teachers in the academy. Uh, rather than being what it was historically, the, the pastor was the theological person yeah. who, had, who taught in that way and preached in that way.
2: I mean, can you imagine being part of a church where you had Thomas Goodwin <laughs> and Stephen Charnock as your pastors? Well, you going to be
1: sound in Christology. Man. You're gonna be sounding the attributes, yeah. That is a, you're gonna be, um,
2: you're gonna be sound. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's the thing is this. There's, there's this distinction that people make now between what's practical and what's theological, without realizing that theology is the most, not only the most important thing about you um, as a Christian, like what you believe about God, but you know, also like that these things could be distinct categories, you know. And I don't know, people just it's this microwave kind of seeker-sensitive, uh, easy believism of our day that we cater to the lowest common denominator. What is the least I need to believe to be a Christian? And that's why I've even seen passing evangelicalism. Well, what's the least that we need to believe to all be evangelical? And we see it just gets lower and lower and lower as the generations go by. And that's where we find ourselves at today, you know, just yeah. simple.
1: Perfect uh, perfect segue. um I think that now here, uh, and I'll just stick with our American context, uh, our American church context, <laughs> something has been lost over these last 80, 90, we'd even say 100 years. And um, now getting to the the TMS journal uh, that you guys put out for the spring, uh, 33, the, uh, number 33, I think it is, about the Trinity. So yeah. again, oh. But no big deal. We're just talking about Trinity. We've talked about reprobation and God's sovereignty. Now we're going to move to something a little easier: the Trinity. <laughs> uh, that's, that's tongue firmly in cheek. But um, yeah, we we are in the midst of something, uh, and I think that we can kind of uh, well, for our you know uh, modern day times, uh, twenty sixteen was kind of the year where the debate about the Trinity and the nature of God, and then that kind of. Uh, That was like the umbrella. Then you have a lot of different vines that kind of came from that. Uh, Issues in Christology and uh, uh, Christian theism and some other things that kind of branched from that discussion and debate. And so then you started seeing lines being drawn and quote unquote sides being taken in the issue. Uh, But what I really like um, is this journal and the contributors to it. And now you kind of see uh, where well, the master seminary uh, is throwing their hat in the ring when we get to uh, this debate. So now it's almost like things are getting ratcheted up a little bit, if you will. And I just want to read this little blurb um, that you guys put on the master seminary Facebook page when when the edition dropped. This is the caption uh, to the link. Uh, to the journal, it says, if contemporary evangelicals are willing to tolerate heterodox Trinitarianism, they must ask themselves whether they have abandoned Jews' charge to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, Jew 3. To that end, this issue of the Master's Seminary Journal is dedicated to errors related to the Trinity as found in modern evangelicalism. Oh, Wow. Yeah. We
2: don't try here. Yeah.
1: fire <laughs> uh, right out the gates. And then you have a various number of, uh, of contributors there. Uh, from the very beginning, you have JV Fesco and then you have Matthew Barrett. He's written on the Trinity. Uh, his book was another kind of a, a, a firestorm that kind of set a little blaze off, uh, with discussion and debate. I think you have guys, uh, Craig Carter known for his classical Christian theism and, uh, his very uh wise way that he uh talks about philosophy and some other things within theology, and then you have uh, some other guys, Doctor uh, Kevin Zuber, who's up there with you, some of the contributors to it. So um, now it's like okay, the Master Seminary has now thrown their hats in the ring. We get to talking about the debate on the Trinity. Going back to that caption. Mentions heterodox. Uh, some modern evangelicals, and again with our context, uh, American evangelicals, have now grasped an idea of the Trinity that is not heretical, we would say, but it is not orthodox as well. So, uh, what did you see uh, yourself personally? Uh, what does some of maybe the other faculty members and your your guys's discussion about about this journal? uh that came out what what did you guys see as far as the landscape within american evangelicalism uh with regards to the, the trinity
2: yeah that's a great question um to kind of you know back it up just a little bit with my I, so i became the managing editor of the journal in the fall of when was it 2020 was my first issue like official i don't think i got the title till the next semester but spring 2021 22 and then this most recent one so i've done four issues And when I got the journal, my goal was, I mean, multifaceted. I wanted to demonstrate to our constituency, but also to the world that, you know, we have strong academic theological chops here to, um, you know, to be in the deep end of the pool, so to speak. And to just show our academic credibility um, in a way that's not just an echo chamber. Right. Which is it happens a lot with us. Right. We we started just to have only our own guys writing it maybe. And maybe we're just talking to ourselves and becoming this kind of echo chamber. And of course, we all agree, you know. Um, But what I thought would be more important for serving the church abroad and broad, more broadly outside of our current sphere of influence was to have a sense of ecumenical ecumenicalism about it where we invite guys to write who on the particular issue they're writing on are doctrinally sound and, and experts in their field. And my thought was this thing, I hope, will outlive me and will be a benefit to the church long after I'm dead and gone. And, um, and if I can do it to the best of my ability, I want to make this a must-read journal, right? Uh, I want it to be better than ETS and the Jets journal. I want it to be you know better than just pedantic comments on the PL stem and this one obscure, um, you know, Ugaritic thing that happens to be related to the old Testament, you know, um, because guys get so hyper specialized in minutia that they're saying nothing of value for the church long-term. And so my original intention was I want to write issues that all have vital ramifications. So my first one I did was on imputation. That's last spring. Because um, I'm like, look, if the if the Protestant church doesn't properly articulate the doctrine of imputation, which you'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be, by how many people are allowed to be called evangelical who don't understand imputed righteousness. Um, that's a whole different, probably, radio segment that you guys, or podcast we could do. But it's, it's mind-numbing that people can pass by and give a gospel presentation and not even understand imputation. Um, and so there's that. Then I did the regeneration, a fall issue on monarchistic regeneration, and then it came to the issue on the Trinity, which I've been working for for a year and a half. So I tried to, those earlier ones were ones that I had less time to work on, and i um, just kind of ramping it up a little bit. And then I was planning a long time ago on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I had a number of other contributors lined up and different guys come and go as, you know, the year and a half went by in the planning process of writing this journal but I wanted to pick guys who were experts on the doctrine of the Trinity and guys who are guys of conviction, you know, so it wasn't just guys who happened to be able to say some good things about the Trinity. Well, but guys who believed them enough to kind of be willing to throw their hat in the ring, so to speak on this issue, to, to draw lines in concrete and um, and to really make a, a, a sufficient, significant stand against the slide of what passes for evangelical when we don't even have the same view of the Trinity right now. Now, I know a lot of guys were taught the wrong doctrine for a very long time, right? Um, For for a long, long time. That's why 2016 really was a a very important time. And what you notice is, is that stemmed from the fact that many guys had been teaching for possibly decades at seminaries across mainline denominations and in other schools, And they've been teaching out of their depth, right? They hadn't read and cherished and digested the early church fathers. They hadn't read the significance of the impact of that as it's – you see it through every generation of the church. They're constantly having to fight for these same things, justification, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, the Sassinians in the 1600s were denying the doctrine of the Trinity. The liberals, as recent as we can remember here now. Deny the doctrine of the Trinity in one way or another. And again, the guys today who are off on the doctrine of the Trinity are more friendly towards us on so many things. So it's not like we're just friendly fire, haphazardly, you know, half cop running around just shooting at our friends for no reason. But it's really intentional in that there's something very serious here, if you get it wrong, with the doctrine of the Trinity. Tread lightly there should be red flags that go up whenever you start to define the Trinity in a way no one has before. And to me, what's important about that is I heard as recent as a couple of weeks ago, uh, a gentleman said that the, you know, council of Nicaea isn't necessary. You know, you don't need to, and I kind of wanted to be like print off Nicaea say, Hey, so what line in here do you think we don't need? Um, Just as a friendly way to kind of point out the, the how bad that statement is to just without any kind of just me and my Bible cavalier way of just throwing out what two thousand years of the church has taught um, without any red flags, without any hesitancy um, is is just very dangerous. I think, and we don't want to go down that that path because it's a path that I think is again. I was talking; it was in our Bible study recently. We we're talking about doctrinal error, and I made the comment that. You know, if you have guys stand up for a conference, right, it, elder qualifications should determine whether or not you're speaking at a church, at a conference, whatever. You wouldn't let a guy who just cheat on his wife get up there and preach, would you? No. Of course not. Well, what about a guy who has a defunct view of the doctrine of the Trinity or a, a novel cavalier way of talking about the Trinity? And he's constantly or you know, guys who are just constantly like digging in their heels and getting more and more bombastically defensive of their pet position that's novel. And again, I'm a guy who hates novelty, so I you know, I'm not using Same. One but, um, um, Kendrick. Um You're never gonna fill the pews that
0: way. You're just never gonna fill exactly. the pews that way. You gotta have yeah. novelty, man.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, yeah, but I mean what I'm saying is like, so you got this guy and he's got a, a novel view of the Trinity, and my concern is, you know, Jesus doesn't say better to have a millstone tied around your neck and dragged to the bottom of the ocean for being adultery or being a drunk. It's for teaching false doctrine. Mm-hmm. The, the most severe types of uh, punishments from Jesus's mouth are reserved for those who teach bad things. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not the area we want to be off on, right? It's a, it's a primary issue. It's a chief doctor. This isn't like guys who are wrong on the current trends, you know, and, policy of politics and stuff you know they can be wrong but it's not the same level as someone who gets the doctrine of the Trinity wrong so um so I knew when we were doing it, it wasn't going to be super popular uh in terms of everybody being happy that we were so or that I I guess I should just take all the blame um that I was so uh, like you know strong in a stance about the issue of the Trinity but it's one of those things that I don't know you know I think it's it's worth fighting for. It's worth, um, you know, even ruining, you know, relationships over, you know, it's, you gotta be willing to stand for something. And I think the Trinity is one of those things that I don't know. I'd lose it all for that. So. Yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly there, brother. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And again, yeah, these aren't even, like you mentioned all the guys, like these are guys from all sorts of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. you know, like all sorts of doctrinal stripes. And I mean, I have, Guys from all sorts of again, different schools, different, um, and it, it is really ecumenical. So it's funny that it's it's a divisive thing, but yet you look at it and it's like there isn't a single. You know, these guys are all so diverse. You know, so uh, I think it does show that this is what really matters as a Christian.
0: I just want to I, I want to point out real quickly something that you you allude to in the prefatory editorial that you wrote to, to show how bad the doctrinal concerns of greater evangelicalism have have become it's gotten really bad and you allude to it with the comment about um uh, you say Un- until recently the website of an influential southern baptist church confessed the heresy of partialism that the persons of the trinity are quote uh co-equal parts of one god end quote now um you you didn't call it out specifically there but what we're talking about is the president of the southern baptist convention whose church website had heresy on it at the very moment he's being elected to the presidency and it quickly came down but it shows the lack of fidelity to truth and and more allegiance to personality that is driving much of the church today.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and that's the other thing. I mean, again, I, you know, I serve at an institution where we are you know, non-denominational. We have a very good doctrinal statement. Um, I personally am very confessional. I love the 1689. Um, I find myself more in that stream, which um, I, I start to value the confessional um, schools and And things very much as I start to think through these kinds of dynamic issues, because I start to reflect back on my even upbringing at, you know, the churches I had attended as a youth. And and in my salvation, I start to read through their doctrine of God sections as I I teach doctrine of God at the seminary, as I teach Puritan theology at the seminary, and I teach, you know, these things. I start to look at where are, what kind of churches are my, you know, students going to potentially take and go become a pastor of and what kind of issues will they wrestle with and i start to read doctrinal statements of contemporary churches and i start to realize they don't have anything to say about god you know mm. it, it'd be just as much at home on a unitarian website or at home on uh, even sometimes jehovah's witnesses websites as it would on a real christian you know website and um and it's just yeah it is there's a lack of fidelity a lack of discernment there's also a lack of concern you know and, um, people don't seem to think it's that important, you know, they're like, Oh, you know, we'll just take it down. It's not a big deal. And we'll just put it up. Like nothing happened. You know, um, rather than really taking seriously what's going on in their churches. Um, but yeah, the, the SBC thing too, is again, not just to, to beg on the SBC. I know really great SBC guys who serve the church in a tremendous way. And I've benefited from a lot of them and I'm not ashamed to call a lot of them brothers and friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I also start to look at, because that was my upbringing, you know, uh, I start to look a little bit more maybe critical at my own upbringing to kind of make sure that I was, you know, benefiting that constituency even going forward more. The thing that alarms me the most is that lack of concern about the the plagiarism of a sermon, you know, that went around. And that to me, this whole, let's play with gloves on, let's just be really nice Rather than calling for repentance, calling for someone to potentially resign, um, instead what we saw from the big voices in Big Eva was just, you know what, we'll just doubly affirm this guy. He's a great guy. You know, he was really nice, and he spoke at my youth camp, and and um, and he's always been so kind to me, and he gave my kids candy at Christmas or whatever. And so they speak all these just, uh, let's doubly affirm somebody. But, yeah, I think the worst part about that isn't even that he – took someone else's sermon like that's bad enough or it's more than one sermon It was like dozens and dozens that they took off but okay let's let's overlook that i mean if he had taken you know i mentioned earlier if he had taken like a loss sermon or a carlos sermon at least i'd say hey he's got good taste <laughs> but um think about what he said and no one raised a flag about that he yeah. said the bible whispers about homosexuality
0: yeah mm-hmm.
2: i mean come on you know um... like that's the stuff he took you know <laughs> He took
0: yeah. like
2: I mean to me the one of the most egregious things that's come a from a pulpit in modern evangelical churches is to say the Bible whispers about heinous sin that sends people to hell. yeah tragic so anyway, well, you, know, that, man,
1: you you have to be uh got to be winced, yeah um, uh you know, just kind of above the fray a little and. Hey, you know, just kind of. Hey, I'm the the shining example of how a Christian should be and conduct themselves. You know, you can't you can't be too worried and bothered about it. Hey, it's okay. So we're off a little bit on the Trinity. I mean, nobody
2: has it all right anywhere. Let
1: me just have this little winsome, humble response.
2: And I that. think that's it. That's that's it right there too. Is that real humility? Real humility is willing to step back. Self-evaluate, listen, right? I mean, that's what the Bible says. And all throughout the Psalms and Proverbs, wise man seeks many counselors. Wise man seeks godly counsel. You can tell when some of these guys are way out of their depth, whenever they're just doing contemplative theology, they're coming up with the answers on the fly Mm -hmm. with what they think the Bible says, rather than, you know, really just stepping back, putting a pause button on their response. And maybe go read a little bit, maybe go study a little bit, maybe go humbly sit at the feet of some other guys for a little bit. You know, you don't have to be the guy who knows everything about everything. There's a lot of topics I know nothing about, Mm -hmm. right? There's a reason why they keep me in a specialty, you know, systematic (laughs) tier certain topics. So I have time to learn the other topics and become Mm -hmm. better and more well rounded. And, um, there are many times where I, again, as I was just talking about earlier, I teach a class on the Puritans here. I have to read the Puritans very broadly to teach a whole class on the 1689 and the development of it from the Westminster Confession and in the three main generations of the Puritans. And so I'm reading very broadly. Um, there are some Puritans I know so much more about, like John Owen, because I've been reading him since I was younger. Um, and there's guys I know a lot less of, like Richard Sibbs, um, And, you know, a guy who's an expert in John Owen will know that I don't know Owen as well as he does. Right. Know him very well. I feel like he's a dear brother of mine, and my son after him, you know, and I've been reading Owen for so long, but as you start to spend time in reading the Puritans, let's say for me, for class and for different writing and things like that, I can normally tell when someone doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can only tell when they're off, when they haven't really studied it like they should, maybe they just did an internet search real quick and Wikipedia something, you know, or whatever. Um, you can only sniff that out pretty quick at this level. And so what I think is happening is, is there's a lack of humility in some of these guys who are off on the Trinity. 2016 was six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it first happened, you know, again, it was one of those things where I had ta- been taught the things that was popular at the time. And I had to commit myself to spending a, a number of years reading. Athanasius and the Nicene and the Cappadocian fathers, Basil, and all mm. these guys, Maximus the Confessor. I had to go read a bunch of this stuff mm. to make sure that I understood this properly. And I didn't go out publicly, you know, cause I have a big, pl- I don't have a big platform, but so, but you know, what's interesting is guys didn't seem to learn the lesson in 2016. Originally guys said that Mark Jones and, and Carl Truman were too harsh when they came out mm. saying that these positions were unorthodox. And looking back on it, history has proven that they were faithfully upholding the standard of truth and they were getting shot from all directions, being too mean, being too nitpicky and whatever. I think Mm -hmm. time and truth go hand in hand. And that's what we've seen is that they were right. And rather than submitting to that and going and studying and becoming a better Trinitarian, you know, Mm -hmm. these guys dig in their heels. And to me, that's, it's a mark of, of pride. It's a mark of not willing to be taught of immaturity. And, um, and again, we, we all simply fall into that when we're confronted with that, you know, from time to time. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there's got to be humility in academics and preaching to be to be teachable, right? Yeah, um, so, I don't know. Just some thoughts.
0: Do this. Yeah. For the folks that are listening that don't know, because you both have referenced 2016, What what's the issue? What happened?
2: Yeah, so I can say, all right, Rashad, do you want to summarize it? Or
0: uh,
1: So, well, um, in 2016, um, and again with with our little world in mind the american evangelical landscape um you had a debate come up surrounding the nature of the trinity uh like you referenced you had guys like mark jones i think keith matheson wrote something on it very early on in it um who's now i think he's a, a reform uh theological seminary in orlando mm-hmm. yeah. i think uh Dr. Matheson is, he wrote some very strong words on it. It was attacking a novel idea of eternal subordination uh, within the Trinity. The eternal subordination of the Son of God in the Trinity. And what yeah, that... I, yeah. Oh, go ahead.
2: Peter. I was going to say, yeah, like, so eternal. they call it eternal functional subordination because they want to get away from the ontological subordination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want them to all come shooting for you if they're not, you know, describing. Well, that's her. okay. Well, I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. honest. I mean,
1: it, it morphs, right? I yeah, mean, so it initially it yeah. was the term, the eternal subordination of the sun. And then yeah. I guess that kind of became, well, wow, subordination—that's kind of tough. So eternal yeah. functional yeah. subordination of the sun. Then it kind of went to the, the eternal relations of authority and submission.
2: Yeah, that's which the one. Which is kind of
1: done. what it is. That's the one you see. E R A S is, is the acronym that you'll see for that. So when you go from eternal subordination of son to eternal relations of authority and submission, eternal relations of authority and submission sounds a little softer than the eternal subordination.
2: Yeah, which is softer. what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Yeah, know. yeah,
1: yeah. And so, um, so in, in 2016, I forget the incident that really set it off.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, so what happened was, is um, the egalitarians who got the Trinity right, right, one essence, three persons, they said, well, if man is made in the image of God, then women should be allowed to be preachers because we're made in the image of God. And so if there's unity in the Godhead, there's no subordination in the Godhead. Well, there should be no subordination among men and women. That's a post-fall thing. That's what the egalitarians were claiming mm-hmm. and so the complementarians rather than just appealing to scripture and saying, well look paul doesn't use that as the reason why there's the gender roles built into male and female paul just merely appeals and says god made man first that's his answer god made it this way and it was before the fall paul's uh it was so perfect right that uh, how scripture works that way. But rather than appealing to that, they said, oh, but there's... So the complementarians come along to defend complementarianism and say, but there's unity and diversity in the Godhead. The unity is one essence. The diversity is authority and submission, which is reflected okay. in male and female. So that was the initial... I think that's what the initial dust-up was, was that now we're redefining the Trinity to defend complementarianism, which is true rather than just appealing to scripture and saying, nah, you know, you guys might got the Trinity, right? But you ain't got this image of God stuff and women preachers, right? Yeah. Um, so that was the initial kind of dust up, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. And then there was a full year. I feel like there could be a whole book written summarizing what happened in that year. It's, it's very comparable to what we found in, when you go back and you look at like Dort, it was like a hundred something meetings at Dort in like mm-hmm. a six month period. You go back and look at the Westminster, they met for, you know, a whole, you know, for years. Right. You go back and look at Nicaea and Chalcedon and, and Constance the Third, and they met for a long time. Well, this is very similar, except it was all very online, you know. Mm-hmm. So, what's lacking in the online forum is the a lot of times the the academic credibility that comes from the peer review process of affirming. So, the right voices are speaking into the discussion. With mm-hmm. online, it's free for all. Anyone can regurgitate their own silly opinion regardless of how well-informed it is or how doctrinally accurate it is. There's no filter to stop people from just putting stuff up on blog posts. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that if you go back and look at the main guys who are credible, you'll find that there's so much rich consistency about the error of EFS. Mm -hmm. But it just never died. It's like we couldn't put it to death and say this was a form of semi-Aryanism that is not acceptable in Trinitarian lingo, right? Your taxonomy mm-hmm. needs to be more precise than that as a pastor theologian.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: you can't just talk about the Trinity any way you want, you know? Um, so anyways, yeah, I think – and I think we see a lot of guys who are just like extreme biblicists. Like, but the problem with that is, is you as soon as you use the word Trinity, you've – up, you're outside, you're right? outside, yeah. of the Bible. You're man. pulling a term that doesn't is in the Bible. And what you're doing is, is, you look at a text, Deuteronomy 6, huh? Says there's one God. Then you look at another text and it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, you look at mm-hmm. other texts where it says, well, there's three here who are all called God. Now, how do I harmonize that? Right and now, as soon as you even say there are three persons that are called God, you're already borrowing from Nicaea. Mm -hmm. and when you say there's one essence you've borrowed from Nicaea right? because again it's harmonizing those texts that doesn't you know whitewash any set of texts that doesn't steamroll any set of texts that allows all the texts to speak with their variety and their uniqueness exegetically Mm -hmm. and that's how we get the doctrine of the Trinity right is Mm -hmm. look I can't define what it says here in a way that contradicts what it says over there you know and, um, and so refined and not just like by one guy in his bedroom pajamas typing on a computer, you know, it was by hundreds of guys over hundreds of years, you know, and you see the consistency of that faithfulness, I think, proves itself um, that you can't define the biblical text without those categories, You know, and that's why I think the Westminster guys were so wise in adding in the phrase by good and necessary consequence, whatever was by good and necessary consequence deduced from scripture is scripture. You know, Mm -hmm. not all things are good. Not all things are necessary. So it has to be both of those things. But we do that all the time. Right. We do that with like women getting baptized. Right. Or taking communion. Mm -hmm. There's no instance of that in the Bible. So if you were just a pure biblicist, then what grounds do you have to yeah. baptize and give the Lord's Supper to your women? Mm-hmm. Well, by good and necessary consequence, yeah. right? all believers. In fact, I would say you're actually violating what God says to do with the ordinances if you don't give women you know, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Right. Yeah. But it's a deduction. You've deduced yeah. that from Scripture. It's mm-hmm. not blatantly on a page somewhere. Mm-hmm. So anyway, random thoughts.
1: Well, God has given us faculties to understand. Most importantly, though, he's given us a spirit to be able to use those faculties in a way to to be able to exegete from the text what is being said and taking the the whole of Scripture and and making sure that we understand exactly what it is that Scripture is saying uh, to us. So, yeah, um, this thing is also made... At least, from my estimation, some very strange bad fellows. you have already kind of brought it up a little bit with the egalitarians. I've I've heard it from people in my inbox. Hey, why are you quoting egalitarians? You know, Kevin Giles is an egalitarian. Why are you quoting them on the Trinity? And we've also broached this. Also, it it has we're off balance with our priorities. So. Well, he he he's a, a liberal or he's a leftist, and, you know, why are you quoting this guy on the Trinity and Rashad? The,
0: tri- well, I was just going to interject that you've got to understand that tribe matters more than truth. So you can't hey, be listen, doing that kind of thing.
1: I was going to bring it up and um, you know, it's the other part of it, the the culture wars, you oh, know, yeah. that is kind of going on. So mm-hmm. you you I can't verify this, but it seems to me most of the of the, the Christians who are right on the culture are wrong on the Trinity.
2: Yeah.
1: And, but yeah, but I mean, I've heard it said to me, um, yeah. you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, I, I believe all three of us on here understand rightly the culture. And by God's grace, we rightly understand the triune God, yeah, but it's like an either or, you know, with a lot of guys in, in that in that area. Oh, we're facing
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, here's the thing: if TD Jakes decides he wants to come and speak at my conference, he let's say I don't know where he's at on the culture wars. Let's say he's right on the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Well, he ain't coming because he doesn't got the training right, mm-hmm. you know. So, I think you got to speak to both. Hey you know, Orthodox Christians over here on my left. You need to understand what the Bible says about church and government or what the Bible says about the priority of the gospel to the ministry of the church, not social welfare right, or whatever. Right. And then you to just say to my friends over here, Hey guys, what do you mean when you call yourself a Christian? If it's not by the historical term, you know what I mean? You can be right <laughs> on social issues, just like, A lot of political commentators are on various news outlets. Mm -hmm. They're right on social issues, but they don't know anything about the triune God. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, it comes with historical precedent of what that means. A Christian is not what I decided it to be today. A Christian is what it has meant since Mm -hmm. the first Christians in the the book of Acts, right? Um, And so because of that, that means I don't get to determine what makes someone a Christian doctrinally Myself. It's not a personal assessment. And that's so you're not the
1: magisterium and the book doesn't stop with
2: Yeah, no, no. And that's what people do is they make themselves little popes when they're doing the no creed, but the Bible stuff. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting is I I think it was Craig Carter. I want to give him credit. I want to give credit to whoever said this. It was brilliant. Someone said, you know, well, Nicaea is not higher in the Bible. Granted, I agree. The Bible is the highest authority. I believe Mm -hmm. Nicaea is a faithful. Um, representation what the Bible teaches in mm-hmm. proper form. But the, the response was, but you are not higher than Nicaea. You know, right. oh, wow! like, man, that is true, yeah, that, right? Yeah, as yeah. one person, am I going to say, I'm the only one. God skipped over 2,022 years of his church, and I got it right. You know, I think that mm-hmm. goes in the same vein as the guy in Europe, um, N.T. Wrong, who decided up the reformers didn't understand imputation, and neither Mm -hmm. did Paul. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, or they misunderstood Paul, or whatever he's trying to say now. You know, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't skip over His church for decades and generations to just reveal Mm -hmm. something brand new to you in your own, you know, navel gazing study. You know, to -hmm. come up with Mm -hmm. new things. And uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just so averse to novelty that it's just a, I'm hyper allergic to it.
1: Yeah, I am as well. Um, yeah, I, I do. Bud is probably tired of me saying it. If it's not, if it's new, it's not true. It's, it's some type <laughs> of something from, from history that is all we've already condemned. And it's wrong.
0: I can quote and Spurgeon again. You know, Spurgeon said, there is nothing new in theology except that which is wrong.
1: There you go. Yeah, he's 100% right. You know, uh, one, one, of, one of my uh, pastor friends out in California, um, along those same lines, made a really good point also uh, talking about the creeds and the confessions of the faith. And he said the question was posed to him. Well, why is your church confessional? Why is your church creedal? Why do you uh, recite the Apostles' Creed and these other creeds? Why do you make a big deal about it? He said, well, you know, they are, they are to protect you from me. And so what he meant by that was similar to what uh, I think you say you believe it was Craig Carter who said it. You know, he's not a mini pope. He's not a little pope. He understands that in the final authority, the highest authority rests with what the scriptures say. And yeah, so far yeah. as the creeds and confessions of faith are 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 faithful to summarize what the scripture's teaching is,
2: yeah. then yeah, well, here I mean, it is. I think every pastor should invite that, right? Every mm-hmm. Christian should. And the reason why I like confessionalism to go back to that just for a moment is that I want you to know what my, what the guardrails are for me personally. So you, can, so I, and so you can evaluate them. Yeah. Right. If I say I hold to the 1689 and yet I believe in uh, mutualistic theism and I believe uh, in multiple intentions, you, the atonement and all the stuff that's not in the confession. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can hold me to a standard. All you right. can say, Hey, Hey, I thought you said you believe this, but as I'm measuring up what you preached this Sunday, what you wrote in this book or journal article or whatever, that's not the standard you hold that's and right. so again it's, it's so you can measure what I believe, and so I also can measure my, myself against the scriptures, right and again, it's not to say that the I teach this in my first theology class. the first class anyone gets with me at TMS and theology one I draw on the board, I draw on the bottom the Bible is the foundation of everything we believe. It is the source, the final authority, right? But then along that, we have these guardrails of how it's Mm -hmm. been interpreted to understand him. I in the stream of what has been historically Christian. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't make those guardrails um, the same level as the, as the foundation, right? Mm -hmm. Those guardrails are so I can measure my interpretation and in, it is okay. And I give examples of this to evaluate those guardrails, personally, and ecumenically, to say whether or not they should be guardrails. Like, for example, the um, the Reformers did that with the Apostles' Creed, and they realized, hey, the descent into hell thing was added. It's part of the Rufinius edition later on in the 5th, 6th century, and so this shouldn't be a guardrail. And so they took it out. And for example, the Reformers, the Baptists, did that with the Westminster Confession, and the um, um, the Savoy Declaration. They said, you know what? I don't think the Bible assumes a transference of signs. And so I don't believe in the Presbyterian model and all of that. And so they said, this is more faithful, but guess what? They did that knowingly. They did it educated and they realized this is not in the Bible. So they wrote a confession so it can be measured. And so that represents what they believe the Bible teaches. And I think there, there's an honesty there. You know, again, it's not to say that those guardrails are perfect. You know, I find faults and and all of those to some degree, how I might word it just a little bit differently. Um, but at least it's a transparency and honesty of evaluate what I believe. It's in print, you know? Yeah. Because we all yeah, have yeah. those prejudices and preconceptions. I think Carl Truman has a whole lecture series on that, you know, about how we're all biased. We just have to be honest enough to recognize our bias and to yeah. put it out for everyone to, to, to measure. We all have doctrinal statements, we all have our own creeds. Are they invisible? Or are they open to to scrutiny for everyone yeah. else? You know, so. Yeah. That's what I was
1: actually reading out, uh, out of Truman's uh creedal imperative about that. Um he makes the point to say, well, everybody has a creed and confession, but you know, is it is it unseen? Is it private? You know, if it's private, what do how can yeah. we evaluate yeah. anything? Yeah. You know, yeah. what can we really hold you to? Oh, I you know? think it so, was
2: um I think it was uh what's his name? Uh Um, Sam Waldron, he said that the church has to um, measure its ministers by a deep and a wide standard, you know? Mm -hmm. So it needs to be broad enough to cover all the importance and deep enough to evaluate whether or not its ministers are really called to the ministry. And that's Mm -hmm. what sometimes these rich doctrinal statements that we've taken for granted for generations for the easier, simpler doctrinal statements— that fit in one sentence for the illiterate, you know, people who come to our churches, um, you know, I just think that that's, that's it. Right. Um, so anyways.
1: yeah, That's good, brother. Really, really good
2: there. And um,
1: I think now though, um, some, some people who end up listening may be wondering, what are we talking about with EFS and internal relations of authority and submission? Why is it wrong? So um, if if you could just briefly, you know, why is eternal relations of authority and submission wrong? What is it? Why is it wrong? What is the historic orthodox view of the Trinity in that way?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the the doctrine of the Trinity, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about. Um, But essentially, we have to affirm all the things that Scripture says without changing any of it. And we need to affirm that there's one God. There's only one God. And there are three persons who subsist in the one Godhead. And the relation of those persons should be defined biblically. We shouldn't take what we see in the economy and read it back into, into eternity past. We shouldn't take what we see as true of God add extra as he has revealed himself in creation, as he is working in creation, and read that back into the ontological trinity, which is what is happening here. And really, what I also think is ha- and, and the way the Bible does that is, what's the difference between the Father and the Son? Or what makes the Father the Father? Is that the Father begets. Mm-hmm. The Son is begotten, and the mm-hmm. Spirit proceeds. Right. And I limit it to those three because that's what the Bible says. It says, the one and only begotten Son of the Father. It's defined that eternal relations- relation for me. I am not taking now His mission or... um the appropriations of divine action and creation, and now importing them back onto the Godhead, which is what's happening. Guys will take mm-hmm. what's true in creation about father and son relationships, authority and submission. And they'll take things that are true about Jesus in his incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they'll read them back into the ontological Trinity. And they say, well, he's the son because he submits. That's not how you define sonship in scripture. According. So to let the me scripture. jump in on you right yeah, there, yeah. Go brother, ahead.
1: on that, on that point. That's, that's, Very important point. So what you're saying is that we can't liken the father to a humanly father and the son to a wife and the Holy Spirit to children in a relationship like Wayne Grudem does in his systematic theology.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why this issue needed to be revisited, because for so long, people were playing fast and loose definitionally in key systematics that were being used across the entire evangelical landscape. And they were, they were defining Trinity in a way that were, that is completely unacceptable. So, yeah, I think that that's the key is that again, you define it the way, if you want to be a true biblicist, right. Mm -hmm. Then only define it the way the Bible defines it. It defines Mm -hmm. that relation between father, son, and spirit as begetting, begotten proceeding. That's it. I'm not going to add to that. As soon as I add mm-hmm. to that, I've stepped into the mysteries of the unknown, you know, the infinite, incomprehensible God, right? Yeah. Um, and then we have to also recognize there's accommodation. That's another thing people forget. God accommodates us so much, but by His accommodation, we shouldn't take a one-for-one relation mm-hmm. with what's accommodated to us in revelation to be true of God ontologically. So, a, a great example of that that's very down to earth with everybody is when we see in scripture, God doing very human things, Mm -hmm. we realize he's accommodating us, speaking to us in baby talk, because again, he can't show us everything about himself all at once. We wouldn't understand it. It'd be way too much to take in. And so he kind of walks along that road with us, so to speak. Um, And so he'll say things like uh, that seem very human, you know, like outstretched arm. he will use anthropomorphic language or anthropopathic language. But we shouldn't take for those that they're one for one correlations with God. You know, he's revealing no. something true about Him, um, but He's not necessarily telling you as He is in and of Himself, which mm-hmm. you is beyond our ability, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I uh, hopefully I got around answered your question there. But yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, we, should, that is. I think we yeah. should abandon those kinds of systematics. I think that they mm-hmm. were uh, they're they're not helpful. They should be uh, discarded uh i again personally at tms i mean what i do is i have guys read bovink and van maastricht and the institutes and charnock that's the old one mm-hmm. those are heavy hitters all the way up and down you know i also yes. have them read from the early church as well so i have them read athanasius and then i also have read basil and, and things like that Theo 2 they're reading turritin they're reading you know i just pick these systematics that are multi-volume because mm-hmm. i mean again one volume systematics are great for layman when they're when they're done well Burkhoff. The biblical doctrine book is both great examples of a one-volume systematic. But the problem with a one-volume systematic is it can't comprehensively cover everything. Um, But if it gets something wrong, there are enough good ones out there, especially when we're talking about Trinitarian first-level order things. You do that doctrinal triage, right? Um, The first-level stuff, you can't get that wrong. You get doctrine of God wrong, let's just get a different systematic, right? Because this one ain't going to help us out. right? Yeah.
1: So on on your note, you you hit on something very important. You know, everything is really important um, about how you kind of have this um, less than careful consideration of the unique person of of the son of God in his incarnate state. Uh, Two two natures united in one person, unlike anyone else in history past yeah. present yeah. and future. So your fate I mean you're forced to deal with tough texts or what seem to be tough texts. Yeah. About Christ in in the New Testament it says things like he sleeps and is hungry and is tired. So yeah. We we understand how to deal with it then. Yeah. Well, you know he's man, you know. But then you see him, you know, see somebody sitting in a tree or sitting under a tree and he knows everything about his life or and how he forgives sin and heals people well yeah because he's also god but it seems as though when we get to the trinity yeah the father is like uh the father like the father the son is like a a wife and then the the holy spirit is like this is literally what wayne gooden says and is
2: i got it right
1: in there under my (laughs) my entertainment center and so you see uh, a fireplace uh, uh, i do
2: all right, yes, you know where you can
0: put I like that. I, I, I saw that coming. Yeah, I
1: but I keep it. But I keep it for quick reference because yeah. I don't want to yeah. mis, misrepresent anyone. No, it's true. And the same goes for Bruce Ware and his writings as well.
2: Yeah,
1: and so um, you see this conflation, and it is tragic. It 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 destroys you theologically of yeah. the incarnation with the being of God.
2: Well, and so in, in our theology classes, I teach our Theo 2, which is Doctrine of Christ, and also Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, and in that class, I try to strive to, to show guys we have a category that helps us, or, or we have a, a guardrail that helps us, so we don't make that mistake when we're reading scripture of importing something human back onto deity, and we call it the communication of properties. In Latin, mm. the fancy, communicatio idiamatum. Sounds like you just modem. summon Hogwarts or whatever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't even know, probably... A bunch of people turned off now. They're Sounds like, like Aquinas oh, to me. I weird. don't know reference to sorcery, <laughs> but uh, you know. But the communication of properties is that you can't take what's true of one property because again, why see is helpful and and the Athanasian Creed as well that both natures keep the properties of that nature without right. mixture, without confusion, without rem- deletion of properties. Right, and they were dealing with real errors in their day people misusing texts and it perfectly explains for us it helps us to understand that you're right when jesus is suffering when he's hungry when he's uh you know tired when he weeps mm. with his friend lazarus dying he experienced the full range of human emotions as a human That's right. but you don't import those things back onto deity where it's improper to attribute those things to deity deity doesn't die Sorry, John Wesley, you got that wrong. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Uh, but the sun dies. And, and when you say that, it's, it's redundant to say a human death. But that's what mm-hmm. we mean by it because only humans can die. Mm-hmm. Deity can't die, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it is one of those things where that communication of properties helps us to not say things that are true of the sun in his incarnation about his deity, because what it does is now it robs the beauty, the, the necessity, the wonder of the incarnation of why it had to happen. Because mm-hmm. guess what? If the son could just always submit in his deity, then he doesn't have to submit as a man to fulfill the law that humans were needing to fulfill as a man. That's it's right. already in his nature to be submissive. So he doesn't need to come submit a human submission because he has his own. Why, is, yeah. why, is,
1: why is the incarnation... <laughs>
2: Special. Des- Why
1: Des- is it that Des- special? Des- He's only
2: doing what he was supposed Des- to do. A yeah. totally different hand grenade since you know I just can see so you guys are letting me do whatever I you know want here. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the critiques I had of a very popular book that did exceptionally well, that I think has some good things in it. So don't I don't want to get too too extreme here. Mm-hmm. The book Gentle and Lowly, right? Mm-hmm. Very popular. I'm sure it benefited plenty of people. Look, I'm not trying to take away, I think he get some things right. Okay. It gets right the fact that the source of comfort that you should have as a a, a, whoever you might be, whatever walk of life you're in, single mother, Mm -hmm. lost your child, you know, uh, whatever it might be, right? Your comfort is in the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord. It points you to that answer, right? Mm -hmm. But my quibbles with it are that it takes things that are true about gentleness and meekness and humility. That yeah. are true of the human nature of Jesus creaturely Christ, traits. that are creaturely traits, and it imports them back onto deity, mm-hmm. which now means the high priesthood of Jesus, which is one of the deepest treasures of my life, right? It's every time mm-hmm. I pray, I have a high priest who's interceding for mm-hmm. me, you know what I Amen. mean? And he's interceding for me as a man. Mm-hmm. So all those man characteristics or human characteristics mm-hmm. that he has as a man, he understands And he can intercede for me in a way that deity cannot intercede for me Mm -hmm. on a pure one for one way. He had to take a human Mm -hmm. nature so you could represent the human nature in all of Mm -hmm. its capacities, which that's why those two things are tied. Mm -hmm. is because he had to take on a human will to redeem our human wills Mm -hmm. or EFS or E-R-A-S or whichever version. They say that the son has to have his own will and will is a property of persons and not of natures. And so now... A property of nature. Yeah, so they yeah, Yeah, they say it's a property of person, not nature. Yeah, yeah. Well, how is my will redeemed? Mm -hmm. If anybody knows he had a crooked will before his redemption, it's me. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. I know the son had to redeem my will. Well, how could he do it if he didn't partake of that nature, that Mm -hmm. will? Right? Can you really say he's truly a man if he didn't have a will? A human will? Yeah. Right? So, again... In the very definition of submission or subordination or whatever, you have one will submitting to another. And that's why mm-hmm. guys like Bruce Ware and those will say that will has to be a property of person. Mm-hmm. And that's where it becomes a huge problem because how is my human will redeemed? You know, mm-hmm. so anyways, those are the questions we can let them try to figure out because it's just not, yeah. you know, they don't have a biblical answer for that, I don't think. I mean, I think
1: you know, and you also look at it. One of the one of the really good books, and he's also a contributor of uh, uh, Dr. Glenn Butner. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, his book that I recommend to anyone who asks me anything about this debate is the Son Who Learned Obedience. And-
0: Let's kind of wrap this up, and then reconnect and and do another uh, another session, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Do you do you have any? Closing remark you want you, you want to encourage folks with?
2: Um, I mean, my encouragement to people will just be to continue to to strive in Christ-likeness and to grow deep. I mean, don't be content with just where you're at spiritually now, right? I mean, we are on a pilgrimage to our heavenly home, and so we should be striving more and more every day to to see that here on earth in our own lives, you know, in a way that. We're just not. We're content to know Christ more and more, you know. Like I just don't want to. I just don't want complacency in the church. It shouldn't have a place in the Christian heart either. And so, hopefully, these deep things that are, you know, encircling people's heads, going, you know, whoa, what was that? Hopefully, it's just a challenge, and an encouragement of, hey, strive on even more, right? Yeah. Amen, brother.
0: Okay. We'll so, folks that. can pay attention. Uh, we'll come back. We'll have another episode, and we'll we'll delve into more of this. Um, this topic of EFS or whatever it's called now because there's a lot to that that's not gone away.
1: Nah, it's, 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 it's going to keep going as long as guys keep writing about it, and people yeah.
0: can follow um, your people can yeah, follow they're Rashad's Facebook until
1: they're page. Ostracized to stop, you know, yeah, yeah, they're, they're writing about it. Yeah, it's come something's always being said and on, on Facebook and Twitter and some other places. So, all it's right, it's not going away, and it's in this. Kind of growing different vines with theism, classical Christian theism, and everything else. So. Oh yeah.
2: yeah, I got a lot we could say about that. We could spend a whole day on that. So that's what I'm saying, yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's got
1: all kind of tentacles from it. Yep. Oh, this would well, be, come back this will be great. We'll,
2: we'll
1: do it.
0: Okay, Rashad, you anything else you want to close with?
1: Uh, no, I'm good. Uh, doc summed it up right there. Till next time.
0: All right. And that concludes this episode of The Bud Zone. The Bud Zone podcast is a member of the Christian Podcast Community where you can find scores of biblically sound podcasts for your edification and encouragement. Go to christianpodcastcommunity.org to discover more. You are now leaving The Bud Zone. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And just a reminder... No doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this show.